Decentralized applications, or dApps, are applications that feel like normal apps, but are actually deployed on the Ethereum blockchain. That means dApps can't be taken down, they can't be censored or blocked, and they typically use Ethereum accounts as identity, and would only experience downtime if Ethereum itself went down. There are a lot of things you can do with blockchain applications, particularly decentralized finance. The company Compound develops protocols built on the Ethereum blockchain that establish money markets. Money markets are pools of assets with algorithmically derived interest rates based on supply and demand. The Compound protocol represents assets as fungible ERC-20 token balances called C-tokens. C-tokens automatically increase in value from the amount of the initial underlying asset. The interest generated and managed through the Compound protocol can be used primarily for long-term investing in Ether and tokens as well as dApps and other entities. Compound provides lots of documents and discords for infusing interest and liquidity and into dApps and related projects. This enables dApps to manage assets that generate interest and could lead to entirely new blockchain-based business models. In this episode, we talk with Jared Flathow, Director of Protocol at Compound. Previously, he worked as a software engineer in Caffeine and founded the company Quasi-Convex Union. We discuss the importance of liquidity and interest-earning assets in DeFi and how Compound is helping enhance dApps and the role of growth of dApps overall, as well as his goals for Compound going forward. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, Jeff. Today we're talking about Compound. I'm just going to ask you up front. Describe Compound in one sentence. Okay, Compound is a protocol for efficient money markets on Ethereum. So you can supply assets to the protocol and borrow assets for the protocol, and you either earn or pay interest. And what does that mean, to be able to supply assets and to borrow assets against against those which you supply like why is that necessary so i guess you know what's necessary is kind of a question in itself but it kind of enables people to to do things that they might not otherwise be able to do so so you know people have collateral in in different forms that we, we think in terms of collateral protocol so every every position if you borrow from the protocol, you need to be over collateralized, which means that you need to supply more of an asset that the protocol accepts, and you can borrow an amount less than what you supply. It depends what you supply, how much more, and and what you're borrowing. But that's that's kind of the the basic idea. And like I guess the question is, why would you want to supply more of a value of, of something and borrow less value of something else? And I think the you know there's different answers to that. There's different use cases, but you know, a lot of times people have have some asset that they want to they want to maintain ownership of, and they also want to have another asset that they can use for liquidity purposes or whatever they might be doing. So there's a lot of kind of trader type people that that are using the protocol. So you can there's ways to hedge different assets against each other as well using this mechanism. But I think I think a lot of it is people who are sort of bullish on on crypto overall and want to be maintain their their long exposure to the to the assets they're holding and then they want to be able to borrow like dollars against against those crypto assets and so they can keep their exposure but also have kind of dollars to use for liquidity and they don't mind paying the interest rate because they expect uh, you know their crypto values to to dominate the, the interest that they're paying so how does a 
interest-bearing account or this interest rate that you've introduced with Compound, how does this become a building block for more complex financial instruments? So, you know, one of the pieces that, I guess the, the kind of the broader industry that we're now part of is, is called decentralized finance. And there's this idea of contracts uh, running particular, particularly on Ethereum now, since that's where most of, most of this is happening, you know, being able to, so with, with, with Compound, the, the assets that you, when you supply, you actually get back what's called a C token. So you supply, let's say, ETH and you get back C ETH. And that token is transferable and it represents your, your collateral in Compound. And there might be limitations on what you can do with it if you're, so if you're also sort of borrowing against it, because you have to maintain that collateral requirement, you can't necessarily transfer it while, while, you, while you have that borrow open. But that's all part of the, the contracts that are written, that everybody knows how the contracts work. And so like the Ethereum network kind of takes on this role and the contracts that are running on it take on this role of the sort of the third party and enables people to stop trusting or not having to trust like middlemen really anymore because the middleman is basically these contracts running on Ethereum. And so the interfaces like that the protocol provides and you know the fact that the balances are are represented as tokens and and the ability to to borrow large amounts of any asset that, that's supported by the protocol because there's, there's quite a lot of liquidity in the protocol now make it a, a really useful primitive for people trying to do all kinds of things so one use case is people building applications who they may have for whatever reason have assets that for a period of time and they can sort of put them into the protocol to earn interest while they're you know over that period of time as far as like the broader financial system there's you know there's a lot of things every day that we're seeing emerging but the kind of these these markets by themselves in traditional finance are actually quite huge markets and there's and it's kind of beyond my over my head a little bit is, is talking about traditional finance since i never really worked in in traditional finance but so fixed interest uh, so compound protocol is is variable interest which is i think is a smaller sort of market than fixed, fixed interest markets but the fixed interest markets are like absolutely huge and and that's something that you can actually build on top of protocols like compound Let's roll back a little bit. Why do you need a token for this system? Like, explain what the compound token does. So the compound token is actually our, our governance token, and that's a different token. So that's that's the symbol for that token is, is comp, C-O-M-P. And that was something that we added sort of only in the last year, really. But like about two years ago, what we did is um, we built the, the V2 of our protocol, and we, instead of just supplying and to the protocol and then you kind of don't have your assets, you, you put them in the protocol and then you don't have them anymore. Instead, with these C tokens, you get back a token representing your balance in the protocol. So if you supply Ether and you get back CETH, that token is now like an interest-bearing version of whatever you supplied. And the basically... The only, the only reason you really ever need tokens is because you want to transfer them. So that's kind of the, the purpose of anything being a token in my mind. And, and so C tokens are, are there so you can have, have these interest-bearing kind of uh, representations of, of your balance that you can, at any time, you can go and redeem them back for, for more than or equal to the amount that you, pretty much more than because the interest is, is continuously accumulating more than what you put in. 
so that's kind of like why you want to have tokens. But there's a difference, again, between these two tokens and then the comp token, which we introduced about a year ago, the beginning of last year, which is uh, our governance token. So also in the, in the last two years, we've got undergone this process of sort of decentralizing the whole protocol. So the protocol used to be have certain admin keys that were um, controlled, like sensitive things, like doing uh, um, certain upgrades that were possible in the system and setting certain parameters. There was also some special price keys for posting prices to the protocol because the system does rely on liquidations, uh, which which do rely on knowing what the prices and the relative values between the assets and the protocol are. But in the past kind of little over a year, we managed to decentralize all those aspects and get rid of all the admin keys. And so instead of admin keys now, we have comp token, and that actually represents voting rights on all these decisions that get made and anything that, that can be done in the protocol, which is some, so some of these contracts can be upgraded and like all the parameters that can be set. So the governance can, can do whatever it wants if, if, if comp holders agree to, to do that in a vote. So we have contracts in place that recognize kind of the balances of those tokens. And that's how the, the whole system is, is kind of controlled now. Gotcha. So of course, it's worth noting, there are people that are working on the compound software. So how are you monetizing this? How is the compound company earning money? Yeah, I mean, so the protocol is not the company anymore. So the, part of this decentralization process was sort of separating the protocol and having this governance token. And now it's really it's really its own entity. The, the protocol has been profitable for you know, since it's since it's been alive because borrowers, when they pay interest, so most of that interest goes to the suppliers of the assets that they're borrowing, but a percentage of it goes to the protocol itself. And that we call it reserves, but it can be used for for different purposes. And lately, there have been various governance actions which have actually used those reserves for different things, including paying some contributors to the protocol. And it's actually, I mean, it's a whole, whole other topic, um, but it's, it's really a self-sustaining system at this point. And then as far as the company is concerned, so the company's VC-backed originally. I think, you know, we raised much money you know, more than a year ago at this point, but, and there's been a couple rounds, but sort of, I, th- I think we're, you know, out of pity and just, cause like, so our CEO, uh, Rob is kind of very, very savvy and has a very more traditional finance background. I mean, out of, out of kind of like pity, I think the company, the company um, is doing extremely well, even though we're not uh, like really trying to make a profit right now. Is there a line of sight towards towards making money or, or is it more like you're just kind of building some infrastructure right now and you're going to think about it later? Yeah, I mean, so so the goal is to really just build infrastructure for for the, the nascent kind of crypto ecosystem. And we're building a, a new blockchain now. Um, that's kind of our latest project. And yeah, I think profitability, we do have a, a kind of, you know, thoughts about that. It's not something that we're publicly talking about yet, I think, but we definitely have, you know, you know, ways in mind uh, that that we, we can see towards being profitable. But you know, we're really just focused now on on building infrastructure that we think will be useful and can grow the, the ecosystem. Since we're fortunate to have kind of significant funds raised already and kind of other investments that the company's made. Okay, so let's get back to the actual core of what Compound offers. 
so if, if I if I deposit some some Ethereum into Compound, I want to I want to bear interest on that Ethereum. Can you walk me through what happens under the hood? Sure. So what happens is you basically you I don't know if you've ever used like Ethereum or MetaMask before. Have you have you used MetaMask? Or should I, let's just assume... I have used MetaMask, yes. Um, so I don't know if I should assume that people know what MetaMask is, but MetaMask is a, a wallet that, that sort of lets you interact with the Ethereum network. There's, there's other wallets that you can use to interact with Ethereum. A lot of people use MetaMask because it's, it's an easy, it's open source, it, integrates, it has a nice Chrome extension. And, you know, what you can do with, with MetaMask is you, you can go to a sort of a website and... If it's Web3 enabled, uh, you can connect to it with your MetaMask and it'll sort of light up your MetaMask and now you can interact with a normal web page using some of these kind of Web3 commands. And so you can actually send, you can make a call to, to a contract on Ethereum using this wallet and you can actually, so you can call um, the mint function on our contract. So we have an interface. There's actually a lot of interfaces to the Compound Protocol because the protocol itself is really just on Ethereum. And so anything that inter- interacts with Ethereum can, or knows how to interact with Ethereum can, can let you do this. And there are there are a, a lot of ways to do this now. But so if you go to like you know our Compound Finance UI, you know there's buttons there that will lead you to that can lead you to click and say I want to mint you know 100 CETH. I don't know. And what happens is you, you just call this contract function and you, in Ether, the, there's this idea of a function can be pay, payable, which means you can send it Ether. So you send it, you send this function call and you call this function and you send it Ether and the contract keeps your Ether and it, it's, it writes down that, okay, now, now Jeff has um, a C Ether balance of this much and it's a ERC20, which, which is an interface for, for tokens on Ethereum. So the, the C Ether that you back is actually a token and, and in your wallet you'll see that you now have this C Ether balance. And that's kind of it. That's really all there is to a mint. And now but now now that you have a mint and you have a balance in the protocol, any of the other connected markets, you can you sort of have this liquidity to draw on, which is like your collateral value that you've supplied. And so as long as you maintain a collateral position in the, in these contracts, you can also call other functions like like you see you can call borrow now on another on another contract or or even the same one technically but yeah and then you you would be allowed to borrow up to a certain amount of of funds from any other of the other markets and just out of curiosity how do those returns compare to what you would get from like depositing money in it in a checking account like in in if i deposited usd in a, a normal money market account how do those returns compare you know, it's hard. They, they are variable. It's hard to, and there's all kinds of market forces at play. But I think in the last few years, we've seen them be significantly higher than what you would get from typical checking accounts. So, I mean, we can check kind of right now what if you go to the Compound Finance Markets page, it's it's kind of up to date what the rates are. I think some of the so stable coins are kind of very popular to borrow, and I guess maybe less for supply, but they actually have gone down recently they're somewhere in like the two to ten percent range i would say usually when you check first as far as earning but yeah it's a it's a function of of demand so one of the things that we can do with because these are algorithmic money markets and because they're completely controlled by contracts is 
the rates are actually completely determined by the supply and demand for each of the the tokens. And so when there's more demand for a particular token or borrowing demand, then borrowing rates go up and in turn the supply rates go, go up. There are there are other variables which come into play and, and including like what other things are happening in the market. So in the past kind of nine months, we've seen a lot of protocols on Ethereum offering these sort of liquidity mining rewards, staking staking rewards. And it's been a, little, a bit of like a battle to get liquidity into different protocols. And so there, people have been, the protocols have been offering these sort of like crazy returns and usually in terms of like the native asset of their protocol. And they can be, they can be very high. And that those have impacts throughout the ecosystem. So if a new protocol launches and it has, you know, it has very aggressive sort of incentive going, then it can actually draw funds out of other protocols. So if that, so if if the supply and compound goes down, then actually drives the supplier interest rates up for the people that remain in the protocol. And so you'll see that thing happening all the time. Like in the last few days, I think um, a lot, a bunch of supply rates went down because some of these. Some, I think some programs may have ended and a lot of funds came into Compound and drove, drove rates down. Still still higher than what you would get with a traditional bank. Can you explain, just refresh me, what is going on when I put money into this protocol? How is it earning interest? Where is the interest bearing coming from? So there, there's a bunch of different assets sitting in, in these pools, right? So you supply... Ether, it goes into the Ether pool. You supply DAI, it goes into the DAI pool. You supply BAT, it goes into the BAT pool. And there are, on the other side, you know, people are borrowing those assets. And when they they borrow, their collateral is locked in the protocol. And they have to be over-collateralized to a certain extent for this kind of the safety of the system. And so they have a borrow balance in the protocol when they initiate a borrow and over time, their borrow balance is increasing. And, then, and so what they owe back to the protocol um, is an increasing number, which means, and, you know, in the worst case, what happens is if they don't want to pay back their, their borrow, their collateral will remain locked. And at some point, if they, if they get, if we call it going underwater, if their borrow balance gets too high relative to their, to their collateral balance, they can be liquidated. And liquidation is kind of, maybe the magic sauce that, that makes things work. But so that means that, so if, if your borrow balance gets too high and you don't have enough collateral, somebody else can repay your borrow and take an amount of your collateral. And they're going to, and they're given an incentive in terms of the amount of collateral they get in order to discourage you from wanting to be in that position and also encourage them to want to close your position. So normally people are, are actually repaying their borrows. If they don't, there's liquidation comes into effect, but but the way that your balance as a supplier goes up is because the borrow balances are, are increasing and what's owed to the protocol is, is sort of distributed to suppliers and also a little portion of it goes to the protocol of itself. Gotcha. So with enough volume, is that the amount of money being taken by the protocol itself? Is that enough to earn the protocol to make the company wealthy? Or does that, when you say the, the money goes to the protocol, does that go to the company that's building the protocol? No, no, it doesn't. So, like, we we like made a very conscious, explicit decision to not, to never 
take those funds to the company. So they, this was before we sort of decentralized the protocol. You know, we never, we never touched sort of the reserves accruing to the protocol because we always wanted to decentralize the protocol. And so those funds actually belong to the, to the comp holders. You know, they can do whatever they want with them. They, they, they basically accrue to a separate, it's called reserves in the contract. So there's each con, each of the money market contracts has a, a reserves, uh, fueled, I guess, and it tracks what portion of the funds in that contract are owned by the protocol itself. And the only way to do anything with those funds is through a governance vote and a proposal and a vote which happens completely on-chain. So it's, it's really completely owned by the comp holders. And as far as like how the, the size, the magnitude of, of it, it's, 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 it's grown extremely large recently. So when I, when I joined Compound a little over two years ago, we had, I think, about $20 million in assets under management in the protocol. And I think, I haven't checked today, but it's about like $12 billion now. So it's it's, it's grown an enormous amount in the past like two years. And yeah, I mean, the, the amount of interest being generated by, which is accruing to the protocol and reserves and also which is being paid to suppliers is, is um, a very significant number. You can do the, You can do all the math on this if you look at the exact numbers on our markets page, or, or just going to the uh, on EtherScan or something, look, looking on what's happening. It, all of it's completely transparent in like the Ethereum contracts. So if I've got a bunch of money, like, like, let's say I have I have uh, three thousand dollars in Ethereum sitting on Coinbase, is there a way to get that into Compound easily? There might be even easier ways, but. The, the kind of default easy way is you, you can send it, you can send your ether to any address which you own, and then you can supply that into Compound. I think there's probably even one step ways to do that. Um, and, you know, I don't, um, there might be even easier ways to do that. I'm not sure. But that's kind of like an easy, the easy normal way to do it. Got it. So I would just, just use my transfer from my Coinbase wallet to my, a compound wallet or a compound uh, compound smart contract. Coinbase is kind of like providing a the service of if you have funds in Coinbase, it's basically providing like a kind of like custody wallet service for you. Even though they have a separate custody product, and and that's not it's not normally. I'm sort of conflating that term here, but they're they're basically you know maintaining custody for you, and so they have they have a wallet that that interacts with. Ethereum that's holding your funds, which is basically just a private key associated with an address. And so if you can, you can generate any private key you want, you can buy a ledger or a hardware wallet, or you can set up a meta, you can open a MetaMask and create an account. You know, there's a lot of ways to, to create a private key and, and then try to track it. That's called, that's basically what a wallet is. Um, so you can, you can generate an account in MetaMask and you can, you can say to Coinbase, transfer the funds to this address. And that address is controlled by whatever wallet you put, you sort of have the private key in. Um, so you, you would transfer it to any wallet. And then from that wallet, you would initiate this. You, so then you could go to like the compound interface and connect with your MetaMask if you transfer it to your MetaMask address. And you could sort of just click a button and it would ask you, do you want to call this function on the contract? And if so, it would, it would do the transfer for you. And you would see your balance, your MetaMask balance, your Ether balance would go down and your your seat either balance would go up. You know, I mean, kind of the whole uh, 
the UI for for interacting with Ethereum leaves a lot still to be desired. But I think it's it's actually relatively simple and elegant on like if you can get past kind of the just the the, the lack of polish and, and like um, the, I mean the fact that it the whole thing is decentralized. I think it's kind of the what makes um, some of the experiences not as as fluid as, as they will be in the future. But yeah, I mean, basically it's just a transfer. And then, and, and the, other, the way to make it even simpler, I think there's, there's probably a way to just, to call the, the compound mint function from your Coinbase wallet. I believe they have this capability. I'm not sure actually how you do this in Coinbase, but the, the simpler way that I hope will, will be the, the normal way in the future is like from Coinbase, you could just click a button and have it supplied to, to compound. Interesting. Yeah, that would be a lot smoother. Yeah, for sure. I think there actually are ways. So um, again, I'm not the expert on like what the state of the, the Coinbase integrations are, but I, I do think they actually have the, these capabilities already. So tell me a little bit about the engineering behind Compound. Like, give me the architecture for the smart contracts that are fulfilling the issuance of interest-bearing Ethereum or interest-bearing Bitcoin when I trade it in. So I guess you're, are you interested in like the, the math of it? I'm kind of interested in the software architecture. I would be interested in the math as well, but, but st- starting with the software architecture. The great thing about building on like Ethereum, and I think the reason why it's, it's kind of exploded a bit in terms of, of DeFi is that it's actually really simple architecture for as far as building like a, a whole protocol. You know, all you really have to think about is you have a set of contracts which run on this network, and they they all have the same state. Like you know, all the machines in this network have the same state. So it's really it's really simple in that sense, and it's kind of also the problem, like why why Ethereum can't scale. But it, it's a really simple model, and so when you're building protocol, really all you're thinking about is like I have these. You know, how do you want to split up your contracts? And the the, the kind of considerations there are, you know, it's all it's really about risk management and the risk of of exploits and security vulnerabilities. And that, so that's really, I think, the, the kind of the name of the game when you're designing a system on Ethereum is is thinking through all of the, the bad things that can go wrong and how you want to sort of mitigate some of those things. And so, like, the design of Compound V2 protocol, we split each market into its own contract. And this was partly... I think because we wanted each one to be an ERC-20, excuse me, and there was kind of a limitation on being an ERC-20, but also I think we wanted to, we did want to split the, the risk of having all the assets be in one single contract in case there was any kind of issue with the contract that there was sort of, they weren't, they weren't all sitting in the same place. And then we sort of moved the, actually initially we didn't have any of those contracts being upgradable. So if you want your contract to be up, by default, everything's immutable on Ethereum. So if you deploy a contract, you know, no one can ever change it. It will just exist the way it exists. But if you kind of, you can build in a function into your contract, which says, you know, allow, you know, it makes it upgradable. And you can, you can make it as, as flexible or as inflexible as you want. So our C token contracts were originally not, were originally immutable because or I think early on, you know, there used to be more value in having immutable contracts. People, I think, felt safer when interacting with contracts that were immutable because they couldn't be changed, uh, you know, beneath them. A lot of things have changed, um, and one of the major, you know, one of the biggest reasons that that kind of sentiment I think has changed, at least with respect to Compound, is because 
is because of the, the decentralization of protocol and because of the, the way that the only way that changes can actually get made to the contracts is, is through the governance process and the governance process is intentionally sort of slow so it's like three days minimum to take a vote and then two days minimum of, of time lock which means that from the time that the vote passes so on chain you can see like okay the, the protocol decided to upgrade this this contract or set the set the reserve factor up this contract into this amount or whatever whatever you're going to do so there's a time period where people can see those changes and they can actually exit the system or whatever they want to do make they, they can opt out before those changes actually take effect. So that whole system has actually mitigated a lot of the original design decisions where we, where we made these contracts not upgradable. And also, to some extent, splitting them into separate contracts. But that's why we have this separate, we call it the comptroller contract. So we have the architecture of V2 is, is there's a comptroller contract. Um, it's sort of like a hub and spoke model. So the, the, the hub is the comptroller contract and the spokes are the, are the C tokens. And so when you, each contract needs to ask these questions when it wants to do a mint or allow a borrow or allow a transfer, it can say, it can ask the comptroller, is this account allowed to do this? And the, the comptroller is the one that determines the value of these collateral is, is sufficient to, to cover the value of, the, of whatever is being asked to be done. If you want to withdraw, you, you have enough funds to withdraw. If you want to borrow, you have enough collateral to borrow. If you want to transfer, you have enough liquidity and collateral to, to be able to, to transfer. But a lot of things have been added to Comptroller since then, it's, but that's sort of the hub and it's upgradable and it's controlled directly by the governance contracts, which, which were added on top of that. Because so basically we designed the Comptroller to be this upgradable contract. It had an admin key and we replaced the admin key with the time lock contract. And the time lock contract has an admin, which is the governance contract. So it, was, it grew organically, but also I don't think we would have really designed it any differently had we not done this like progressive decentralization. But things, some you know, some things have changed. So the C token contracts that we started out as the spokes that were these immutable contracts, the newer ones are actually upgradable as well because the community has found a lot of value in being able to to modify those contracts. And because like I was saying, the the it's it's fairly safe do so since it has to go the only way to upgrade it is actually through this this governance process and the community can it's fully transparent and the community makes those changes itself and sort of audits itself and, and does all the, the things to make sure that whatever changes it wants to make are going to be sound but i mean of course there's there's a lot more to it i, I don't know if um, i don't know if you want me to keep going on, on this topic but i'm happy to yeah i mean it, it's it's quite interesting has there been much in the way of of protocol changes with like have these government have the have the governance tokens actually been been used to to vote on some changes to the infrastructure yeah we're actually at our like 42nd i think proposal now i think i think 41 just happened i gotta check the numbers if you go to compound that finance slash governance you can see all of the proposals that have happened and actually who's voting and the leaderboard and, and it's all transparent there's actually other you don't have to go to compound that finance there's other systems now which are tracking the governance processes that are happening because basically we went after we we were we were actually one of the maybe the first like fully on-chain governance system we built those our governance contracts last january was when we released them actually and then we built this other system for distributing comp through our comptroller contract for people that were interacting with the protocol 
and it sort of kicked off this this whole like summer of, of DeFi just by the mechanics of it. But um, a lot what happened is a lot of other protocols started cloning or co- using our governance contracts and also our our governance token, which is Comp contract. So by the way, our Comp contract, which which is the governance token, is a separate contract from our governor contract. And the reason for that is the governor contract is upgradable. The Comp contract is not upgradable. It's mutable, which is really appealing to for for a token contract. So like Uniswap is actually using a modified version of that for their for their governance token now. And a lot of a lot of the the protocol governance systems which have emerged in the last like nine months have been um, are actually version very similar versions of our of our governance system and so there's actually systems now which are familiar with those particular contracts and are sort of able to integrate with the governance systems of all these protocols because they're all using the same very very much similar contracts so I think one of them is called with tally which is a, a way it's sort of a a way of interacting with all these governance um, systems, but yeah, it's very. I think it's very active, and it's been getting more and more active. So it's a good time to to get involved. I think if, you, if people are interested. But what would happen? Actually, the last one of the last proposals passed this last week is um, the community grant proposal, the community grant committee, which is is probably going to bring a lot of, of of exciting changes because what happened? What before the only way that changes were actually getting made. There was a few members of the community that have been sort of writing code and contributing. And then what they do is like after they make some code changes, then they in, included in their proposal in this slow governance proposal process, they say like, oh, and by the way, like send me some comp or send me some side because this is how much, you know, I deserve for, for working on this. And so like the governance sort of decides all at once, okay, we, we like this change and we're going to pay you for it. But it was kind of bad because it's very limiting in terms of people contributing because you know you don't a lot of people don't want who wants to develop and like not be sure if they're going to get get paid and so we actually so now we have this it was just voted and, and executed by the this governance process that we now have a grants committee which I think they, we gave them like two million dollars for like a six month program whatever they don't use they're going to return but they can actually just. So they, they're actually doing everything in our pub, in public through, through there's a comp forum and then on our Discord channel there's a there's a way there's a, we have a grants channel now and they have a, a Twitter account and um, so you just kind of like apply to the to the committee they sort of make it really easy to just get funds they're they're sort of establishing their process like this really happened like in the last few days so it's like really being established now what the processes are, are looking like but um, it's pretty cool like it's just happened like completely organically and. Now there's this this uh, like expedited way of, of if, if you want to develop or build on protocol, you can actually get like very significant grants to do so, and that's because the protocol has like a huge amount of assets now to allocate for this this type of purpose. But that's just one example of, of governance. So other things like governance often votes on things like adding assets to the protocol. There's talk of recently about changing the price oracle, changing reserve factors. You, you, yeah, I mean, I guess you can look through the, the 40 proposals. Some of them are, are, are more boring than others. Can you explain a little bit more about the C tokens, the, the ERC tokens that represent the assets that are held by compound contracts? Sure. So, actually, so what, what, what in particular are you wondering about there? Um, mainly like, how they function like once i own 
own one? How is it like, how, how am I earning the interest on it? Like, where is that interest being tracked? Yeah. So the way it, these contracts work is you basically, it's a, it's a program, right? You, you have a bunch of, of functions. So when you write a contract, you say like, these are the functions that can be called on my contract. And you say, you also define like some storage slots. And this is the Ethereum model. It's like you pay gas. So when you want to do something, in a con- when you want to interact with the contract or, or interact with the Ethereum at all, every operation costs some, some gas. And so one of the more expensive things you can do, the most expensive thing you can do is write to permanent storage. And so, but you're kind con- but there's, but, that's the only consideration if you if you want to add if you want to have storage in your contract you can just add slots for storage it just it'll and if you use those storage slots in your contract it will it make people that interacting with them more expensive they'll have to pay more to, to interact with, with those functions if, the more expensive you make them but but there's sort of like storage available on there's a single state machine which is ethereum and if you want to write to storage in the in the Ethereum sort of state, then you can you can just do it in your contract. You just have to pay to do it. And so this is basically how um, contracts do everything. They can't really they can't interact with the outside world except through. I mean, they can't. They, uh, all of the, the the Ethereum VM functionalities are either like reading and writing from storage or, or doing math operations and things like this. There's no um, network calls or anything. And so and so what the Compound Protocol is is basically you call call mint you transfer mint does a transfer of assets and, and there's there's some you know it depends what you're transferring there's actually different types of assets on ethereum like ether itself is like the native asset of ethereum and it's not an erc20 but all the other assets in compound are, are actually erc20s themselves because erc20 is basically the, the standard for how you transfer things which aren't ETH on ethereum and so when you basically everything that's happening is just through tracking storage and doing math on the uh, Ethereum state machine. And so really all, all the contract is doing is it's, it's keeping track of who supplied what. And, that, and then the way that the magic of, the, of interest happens is that it's actually implicit. So we, we can't like go, we can't loop through everybody's account and be like, okay, you get this much every, you know, and when, when would you even do that? It's, it's like compounding every block. And so we can't every block loop through all the users' accounts and be like, you know, add this much to their balances. So instead, we use what's called, uh, what we call an interest index. And whenever an action is taken in the protocol, which increases the borrow interest that's owed to the protocol, which is actually, this. so this happens every block. Every time somebody interacts with the protocol, one of the first things that's, that's done is there's an accrue interest uh, function that's called. And what that does is it, it, um, it we call it truing up. It trues up the the borrow index. So the borrow, the total borrows that are owed to that whatever contract that you're in. So, in the C token contract, if it's the C market, you're interacting. First thing that happens, whether you're minting or, or or doing anything, the first thing that happens, minting or borrowing or transferring or withdrawing or uh, repaying or liquidating, the first thing that happens is accrue interest. It says what was the interest rate since the last time that we accrued interest, how much interest has been accrued, and then it actually allocates that um, to different uh, to different 
places. So there's really only two places it can go. So it sort of takes a little fraction of that and puts it into the reserves, and then it takes the the other large fraction of it, puts that into the it gives it to suppliers, and the way it gives it to suppliers is it it ticks up the exchange rate. And so when you're holding a C token balance, the amount that you can redeem it for is increasing via the exchange rate. And so like you basically you don't have to update everybody's balance. Um, instead, they just have a C token balance. The exchange rate is going up, and when they want to redeem their C tokens for the underlying, you can do do so at an, at an increasing uh, value. Gotcha. Can you tell me more about the actual development of the protocol and how you, like, software engineering proceeds? Like, how does testing work and how does a deployment work? Just give me a, an overview of the of the software engineering practices. So, the the main consideration with, with Ethereum has been, like I was saying, like security. The thing with, and especially earlier on, and like it, things have, have definitely been evolving on Ethereum. So, I guess I'll maybe go through the journey a bit. But like very very early on, it, it was like it felt a bit like you're like deploying these like spaceships or something. You once you put them out there, because a lot of them because they're basically immutable by default and you can't really change them or it's a lot more like hardware right you, you like deploy them you can't really necessarily do anything one to fix a problem if, if it happens once you deploy them so we put like a ton of effort into making sure that first of all that we don't have problems once we once things are on chain and second of all that like we have the right like knobs and levers to be able to to fix things when they go wrong and then but and but also like not too many lobs and levers that that people that there's like admin powers that people need to be afraid of, um, and it's it's actually like you know that's a, it's a tricky balance to get right, and I think it's, it's the, that's the hard part of uh, like building on Ethereum, but but the way that we sort of make sure that we don't have problems when we get to the, to the chain, and of course there's really no way to like guarantee that, but that's why we have like a sort of multi-tiered approach to this, through basically as our QA process where we. So the first thing we do when we're, we're building a new contract or anything is we, we, we do an in-depth, in in detailed spec document. I would say this is usually like the longest part of our process where we actually specify it as it, in as great as detail as possible, like all the different angles of the system and how things should work. And that lets us, when we get to actually writing the, the contracts, focus on you know the, the key things that we really care about and, and um, not have a lot of other noise and back and forth on, on the code when we get to, to actually writing the code and we can keep the code very like streamlined and very transparent as to what, to what it's doing and try to be very clear about it. And then what we do is once we have a spec, we start we start writing this code and then you know we'll, we'll add unit tests as we develop the pieces in the spec. So it should, the, that, the basically the contract itself should be, are generally like one-to-one -one with these spec docs. And then the unit testing is just a matter of making sure that, that those functions like do something reasonable with the, do the right reasonable things that they're supposed to, but they should cover like every every branch of you know that can happen in the contract. And then the next thing, the next level of testing is like integration testing and simulations. And I think simulations are actually the most powerful uh, way that we have of of checking that the contracts will behave the way we expect them to. And like now nowadays, when so we're not doing the the main development of the protocol itself anymore. It's actually the community is, is very much do, doing the development now. And so like the processes we had as a company for de developing contracts, we sort of, we tried to 
you know, empower every, everybody in the community to, to follow these guidelines so that they'd be able to make changes and get them approved by governance. But yeah, this is so like the, this phase of like simulating, you know, what the effect of your changes will be or what your new contract will do is, is a very cool kind of powerful thing that you can do with, with Ethereum and, and other blockchains is um, so you can, you can like basically fork the state of the network and then you can like do these hypotheticals of like, okay, like basically I have, I have a clone of Ethereum, like this was the state at this block and now I do all these other things and pretend like all these other things happen and you can like see if your, if your expectations are met or, or, or not. And you, you have to do a lot of, you know, thinking about what sort of scenarios you're testing there, but it's a very powerful way of, of, of checking what will happen, you know, after you, you make some changes. And then kind of the other, other piece of the process that I think is, is very important, not just because of the results. So it's, it's formal verification. So we work with a, a company called Satora that um, has a has a tool to to formally verify solidity contracts and or it really EVM bytecode. What you do is you write down what they call them CVLs, the Satora, Satora verification language. There's other formal verification frameworks as well. It's just one that they've been using. But they uh, you basically write down like invariants that you expect to hold in a way that you can sort of ask the, the verifier to try to, to prove that those things hold. Or really what they do is they try to find exceptions to, to your invariants. And so they either say like, okay, can't, can't find anything. And you say like, okay, then I've proven this thing. Or they find sort of an instance of a state of the contract or, or of the EVM, which violates your assumption. So for example, you could write down a, a verification rule that's like, you know, exchange rate. If I check the exchange rate and then I do some action in the, any, I call any function on the contract and then I check the exchange rate again, the, the second exchange rate must be greater than or equal to the, the first exchange rate. So you can write down that kind of thing and it can actually prove that, that, that like, yes, that's the case. There's no function. There's no way to actually make that state, you know, get to that state without given these functions in the, in Given, the, given this contract, or they say, you know, there is that's not true. There, this can actually, this can actually occur. But what you get there is you don't get that, you know, all the ways that it can occur. You just get like it's not. It doesn't really. You, you sort of have to think there, like, well, why did this? How to define this counterexample to like to what I was trying to prove? So there's definitely, you know, whole process of if, if you're finding those kind of issues, you have to think a lot. So that's why I say the results of the formal verification aren't the most useful part of it because the technology is actually still pretty nascent and you know there's a lot of things you still can't prove but the sort of the thought process going into it and trying to think about the contracts in this way and thinking about the invariance in the system is um i, I think a very important part of the, the process and trying to to make sure that they do the contracts do what you, you want and expect them to do but yeah i mean that's that's basically the process and then so we go through the um those qa steps typically and then there's an auditing process usually for bigger changes and community views things typically, and again, then it's up to somebody makes a proposal. You have to have a certain amount of comp to make to make a proposal, or you can go through these. You still need a certain, like a much smaller amount of comp, but you can make a, a community proposal, which which says it sort of doesn't really get proposed until it, re- it gets enough support, and then and then it becomes a real proposal, which people can vote on. And then once uh, yeah, once it's proposed. We'll start voting, and if it gets enough support, it'll be passed, which means you can 
you can queue it in the time lock, and then after enough time, enough time elapses in the time lock, you'll be allowed to execute it. And then if it doesn't, if it does, if nobody executes it after a certain amount of time in the time lock, so like it's typically like two days. You have like it takes at least two days, and then if nobody called it for like two weeks, which has never happened, but like if that happened, then at some point you can't call it anymore; it would expire, and uh, it would effectively be canceled. But that's that's pretty much the whole process for how people make make changes for, to the protocol now. And so we we started to, as I was saying before, we're like we're actually working on our, our own chain now. We're not, so we are still doing Ethereum development. We do we still still follow this process for how we do the contracts that are on Ethereum, but not everything is on Ethereum anymore. So we're starting to sort of expand this process to uh, try to apply it in a less restricted system. So the EVM is very restricted constraint system, which is nice for being able to think about the safety in a lot of ways. I mean, when you're, when you're building the blockchain itself, you don't necessarily have, uh, you don't rely on the assumptions of, uh, that, you, that you necessarily do when you're working within the EVM. So the new chain that you're building, you're building an entirely new blockchain for Compound. Yeah, so we it's called um, Gateway. So there's actually a project called um, Substrate, which is which is a framework that Polkadot, Parity, and Web3 built for for Polkadot, and it's actually it's a Rust sort of framework. Well, technically, it's like it's the Wasm interface, you could actually build a substrate chain not in Rust, but the, really in practice it's a, it's a Rust framework for building a blockchain and or really a bunch of libraries for building a blockchain so we're sort of, we've been using that our, our code is actually open source ready for this and we're, we're, we've launched our testnet we're, uh, and we're, we're in the process of, of adding validators to the testnet yeah, it's it's our, it's, its own chain it's, it's starting out as a proof of authority network the idea is to eventually be staked by comp but it introduces this asset called cash which is a, a, an interest bearing stablecoin which is in a lot of ways similar to the v2 protocol we've been talking about on ethereum but it sort of takes all of the learnings that we've had from the v2 protocol and it tries to make a like a reimagined like way better v3 in a way but it sort of connects to other chains which is the reason it's own it's its own chain so the only starport we call them starports, which is like the contract which connects to the compound chain or the to the gateway on whatever chain that it's talking to. But the idea is you can lock assets on Ethereum into the the starport on Ethereum, and then they magically are uh, part of the on gateway. Then and then you have this cash asset that you can actually transfer between any of the connected chains. So people on a, on Ethereum will be able to move move assets and, and onto gateway and, and sort of use their liquidity on Ethereum if they want to if they want to go and use some cash on a, on a different chain like Polkadot or, or um, Solana or Tezos or whatever starports get built for Gateway. But the idea is it's a, it's a cross-chain chain. It's, a, it's like a, a network chain for, for moving value between chains. But it's also kind of the, the V3 protocol. Very interesting. Sounds ambitious. Very ambitious. Well, we should begin to wind down. I'd love to get your picture for how DeFi unfolds in the next five to 10 years and just what the overall landscape is going to look like from, from your perspective? I mean, I don't know. It, it's really amazing. It's been a really amazing journey. I've only been um, at Compound a little more than two years and it's it feels like much longer than that. Um, they, you know, so many things have, have changed and it's just exploding now. 
and it's really I mean Amer- you know when I started I thought like this is amazing it's really hard to keep up with all the, the awesome developments that happen like every every week but it's like it's like so much harder now and yeah there's just like a ton of really smart people working on and things and like trying to really change the world I think and I, I think I think they're going to succeed um, I think we're going to succeed like I think in five to ten years the, the whole sort of financial infrastructure will look different I think uh, you know it's already happening and I don't really know exactly what it's what it's going to look like, but I do think you know. The, I think in order to succeed, like things have to become way more usable. So that that's got to happen, and like so there's got to be so less focus on like on like innovating and, and breaking things, and more focus on um, on how do you make things work for people who don't necessarily understand like what's happening under the hood. And I think like with respect to like like protocols like Compound, like you know, I think. The way that I would like to see things expand is, is in terms of the collateral, uh, the types of collateral that you can use. So, I mean, I was thought of the compound is kind of like a basis of trade. So you can, uh, it's, it's kind of, a, yeah, it's just a way of, if you have some value, which is not necessarily liquid, to be able to, to, to take advantage of that value and use it in a more liquid way. And so I think people have, there's like all kinds of collateral that people have, but, you know, houses, cars, whatever. And, and like and even more abstract things than that that they're not able to really tap or or you know leverage the value of so i think you know as more things are brought onto chain and repre- represented in ways on chain that are that are good representations like you know where you're not losing the value so you have to be able to reliably represent things which is kind of the challenge for, for getting new collateral types on, onto the chain but you know that, yeah that's that's certainly my my goal over the next what I hope to see happen over the next five, ten years is like really having a broad set of, of things that people can represent on the chain and, and do pretty much, I think even if you could do all the same, you know, do very similar things that you could do today, but with all these other types of assets, it would just be really amazing. So, But I, I'm excited to see because I'm sure that everything that I, that I think will happen now is you will be, be dwarfed by what actually happens. Yeah, sounds Amazing. And I'm kind of a believer at this point too. I'm I'm trying to keep up with the space best I can, although it's it's such a big animal at this point, and to try to keep up with it concurrently with the rest of the world of software engineering is, is quite a quite a trial. Yeah, it sure is. I don't think anybody can, can really keep up with it. It's yeah, you just gotta pick some some things that you're interested in and try to pay attention. But it's a good problem to have, I think. Well, Jared, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for having me and glad to be part of it. Thank you.